Hello, and welcome to History is Gay, a podcast that examines the underappreciated and overlooked queer ladies, gents, and gentle endies that have always been there in the unexplored corners of history. Because history has never been as straight as you think. Welcome back. I'm Lee, and I have a very special co-host today. Hello, I'm V. Hi, V. Just the letter. Literally just just the letter. letter. Like share. Yeah. Just (laughs) just non-binary share. Non-binary share. That's me. (laughs) Yes. Uh, V is a wonderful friend who uh, you already know through their amazing artwork. They have created some beautiful artwork for us. All of our geographic queers gear, they are responsible for it. And it is now your duty, uh, now that they are on this show, to convince them to do what I've been urging them to do for months and months and months, which is make me a Quagmire Queer shirt. You can't make me do it. Please. You can't. I know that it's hard to draw a swamp, but I believe in you. Okay, no, but okay, so the thing is, Yes, it's hard to draw a swamp. It's harder to pick what kind of swamp to draw, though. Like, when you think beach, beach is easy. It, like, it looks like a beach. There's sand and there's waves. You know what a beach looks like. Underwater? Yeah. Okay, there's water, there's seaweed, and there's also sand. Lots of sand in these cases. With the swamp, there are so many different kinds. You don't understand. I studied ecology. There are so many different kinds of swamp. We're going to put up a poll on the Twitter, and the History is Gay listeners will vote on what kind of marshy, marshy, quagmire, swampy, swampy fun time V will have to draw, because we love them. Yes. Sorry, you cut out there for a second, but I'm assuming you said that we love the listeners, which is true. I said we love you. Oh, you love me? Oh, that's nice. Look at that. Well, I love the listeners, so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, you do love the listeners. I mean, I also love the listeners. Always always be happy about the listeners. Um, so anyway, yes, welcome to V. This is their first time actually on the podcast. It's and true. they're going to be our guest host today for our awesome topic. Today, we are talking about somebody that we've been wanting to get into for quite some time. Queen or king, depending on how you want to look at it, Christina of Sweden who is one of the best-known queer quote-unquote women, we'll talk about that soon, of the early modern period, who had an intimate affair with their lady-in-waiting, abdicated the throne to adventure around Europe in men's clothing, and generally fucked shit up from the Gothic homeland of Sweden all the way to Papal Rome, like you do. We love them very much. We we really do love them very much. We're very, very excited. Also, I want to thank everyone who is listening for their patience in getting this episode. Uh, This month turned out to be a dumpster fire in many different ways. Um, One of which being I just wanted to have a little bit of a... I'm going to have a little bit of a somber moment here for a minute, um, just because I have a platform and I'm going to abuse it. Um, So one of the reasons why this podcast is a week late is I was... I am an alumni of Saugus High School in California, which saw a shooting uh, last week. I guess if you're listening to this, it, it'll be the week before then. And that was really shocking and was really difficult to kind of wrap my head around. Um, so I just want to say to 
anybody and everybody who's like been through gun violence or has dealt with something like this before that I love you and that community is behind you. And I I never thought I would be <laughs> so um feel so connected to my hometown again, which Santa Clarita is a interesting place in and of itself. Um but yeah, I just uh want everybody to stay safe and to talk to their politicians and get guns under control and make sure this stuff never happens again because we're the only country in the freaking world where this is happening again and 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 at again. this rate so um yeah i just i felt like if i've got a platform to talk to people i i at least felt like i needed to to mention that um it hit home really closely and i have a couple of uh, friends who were t- were teachers of mine when I went and are still teachers, and they had some just terrifying experiences. Um, and it's yeah, I don't know. I I just I don't really know where I want to go with that, but I just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, and uh, fuck the NRA. And yeah. Anyway, um, with that, <laughs> let's get back to fun stuff. Um. <laughs> Speaking of content warning kind of stuff, content warning for this episode, mostly pretty tame, but we are, we did want to have a quick discussion about pronouns. As you noticed, uh, we used they and them for Christina, again, with kind of what we did with Claude Cahoon and the public universal friend. There are elements of Christina's story that indicate that they may not have been fully comfortable with their assignment as female at birth. So we decided as a team to use they them pronouns when we specifically are referring to Christina. And anytime that Christina is being referred to by someone else's voice, either their own or somebody else from a primary source or another text that we're reading will be using the she, her pronouns because we want to preserve the history of that and the way that Christina was perceived at the time. This is not an attempt to misgender them at all. We have no idea what this person really thought of themselves. And there's been a lot of debate among historians for years and years and years about how to classify Christina. That's our decision tonight. We do what we can with context. So yeah. So just just that little little aside there, that's our thing, but just, you know, don't be surprised if you hear different pronouns throughout. And then lastly, because I've talked so much, format for this episode, obviously, is going to be people-focused, so we'll start off with a not-so-brief bio, because Christina did a whole bunch of stuff, and then we'll go into why do we think they're gay, and as usual, we'll end the podcast with how gay were they, our personal ranking about how likely it is that they weren't straight. And yeah, that's what I've got. Uh, V, do you have any cool announcements that you want to talk about? Before we dive um, right in? No. Okay. <laughs> I, not cool. that I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> yeah. Um, not a lot going on. Um, we have merch still. Yay. Uh, stickers are up there. Uh, put my geographic- art on your bodies. Yeah. Put V's art on your body or your water bottle or your laptop. <laughs> Lots of different options. All right. So that is our intro fun stuff. And now I'm going to continue talking. I'm not used to doing this much (laughs) talking in a row. Woo! Uh, So we're going to start off. We're going to dive right in uh, before we talk about Christina, 
themselves. We're going to talk about a little bit of historical context. We're not going to go super into detail because we've already done a bunch of stuff on medieval Europe. <laughs> and yeah, there you go. So generally, we're dealing with 17th century Sweden here which at the time was in the midst of what we call the Thirty Years' War, which was a big fuck-off war that raged across Europe from 1618 to 1648. Hey, look at that. It's 30 years. Wow. Um, and it mainly pitted Protestants against Catholics. One of the most prominent empires in Europe at this time was the Habsburg Empire of Spain, which had dominated Europe for more than 100 years. But at the time that we enter Christina's life, Spain had sort of begun a long decline. Rip. Sweden's greatest enemy at this time was the Austrian Habsburg Empire, which was a Catholic power that stretched basically from Poland to areas of Czech lands and from Bavaria to Croatia. Uh, we didn't have yet a unified Italy, but there were a whole bunch of different, like, magnificent Italian cities and papal Rome, and they were experiencing their own artistic renaissances. So, like, France and Italy were the place to be if you wanted to, like, consume art and be cool and hoity-toity. Uh, Sweden itself was relatively underdeveloped during the 17th century, despite it having a vast military prowess. Uh, it was still operating as basically a medieval land. So, you know, we've kind of reached like a renaissance um, in a lot of other places. But in Sweden, it's like still mostly rural. They're relying on foreigners for capital. It's cold and everybody's just wearing furs. And Christina themselves would attempt during their reign to kind of drag Sweden into modernity and emulate the great artistic prowess they admired throughout England and France, which we'll talk about a little bit uh, more. So it's your turn to talk. It is. It's my turn to talk. Finally. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> this was also during a period where scientific thought had uh, sort of begun to take a greater hold across Europe uh, with uh, quote unquote natural philosophers striving to prove uh, explanations of the natural world instead of just like theological ones, which was pretty rad and in Yay, of, science yeah love me some science as someone who studied ecology um <laughs> i mean mostly it was botany but you know i worked in a lab for ecology anyway we're talking about sweden in the 17th century plants <laughs> plants um in terms of attitudes towards queerness let's talk about the gay people um <laughs> sweden was uh pretty religiously lutheran uh in the 17th century and some scholars suggest that the lack of laws against homosexuality are specifically so that people wouldn't get any ideas because you you can't do the thing if you know it exists right that's what is to gay what is to sex who who know who know what who a know? gay what is a gay what what is a gay that is the question we are trying to answer here <laughs> tune in what next week <laughs> the gay <laughs> Um, but yeah, there were no official bans on any, like, same-sex sexual acts. Although, about 20 men were still tried in court for sodomy in the 17th and 18th centuries. Unsurprisingly, yeah. the same cannot be said for women, who obviously have no sexuality. Cue eye roll. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We've yeah. certainly talked about that before on this oh, podcast. Oh boy, have we. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> you can't do a sexual sin if you don't have sexuality, am I right? Exactly. Hey! <laughs> This is at the point where I would love to have a patriarchy jingle, but Buffering the Vampire Slayer kind of has that cornered. Um, <laughs> it's okay. We'll stick with our colonialism jingle. Um, it's a good jingle. So, yeah. Uh, so, let's dive a little bit into the very, very long bio that we have for Christina, because they did a whole bunch of shit. Um, so, we'll start with their early life. 
so Christina was born on December 18th, 1626 at Treconor Castle in Stockholm, Sweden, to King Gustav II Adolf and Maria Eleonora of Brandenburg. Um, and Maria Eleonora was not Swedish by blood, so there was like a, there was a bunch of stuff when they got married, and she was not happy with Sweden, and people were like, ah, why is this German lady hanging out here? We don't have time to go into all of that, but if you uh, read some books on Christina, you'll read a whole bunch of fascinating stuff about that. Uh, by the time Christina was born, their parents were desperate for an heir and were hoping for a son after several failed births. In Christina's own autobiography, they described their birth like this, quote, I was born with a call, and my face was pallid. My body was entirely covered with hair, and I had a deep, loud voice. This led the midwives attending me to take me for a boy. For a time, the king was deceived. So when they were first born, the midwives, you know, like this baby coming out, like, covered in a call, which is kind of, kind of like, a, like a sack, basically, um... They announced to the king that the queen had just given birth to a boy and everybody was really excited. Yay, we finally have an heir. When the mistake was discovered, their Aunt Catherine informed King Gustav of the mistake by basically walking up to him wordlessly with the naked baby Christina in her arms, being like, Ugh, sorry. And Gustav, according to legend and according to Christina's own words, said, let us thank God this girl will be worth as much to me as a boy. I am content. She will be clever, for she has deceived us all. Uh, unfortunately, Mama was less cool with the mistake, and it was determined that the truth should actually be kept for her for several days after the birth. Um, Maria Eleonora was not the most stable of people, which we'll talk about <laughs> oh a little bit later. <laughs> Uh, when she learned that Christina was born a girl, she reportedly tried to attack Christina. And, you know, after four pregnancies and the deaths of three infants, she was pretty understandably inconsolable to find that she hadn't born a son. Before Gustav left to fight in the Thirty Years' War, he secured Christina's inheritance to the throne, basically told everybody, hey, we're probably not going to have a son, uh, so Christina's going to be the heir. Don't fight me on this. And gave the orders that Christina should be educated as a prince should he not return from the war. He said that if he died, Christina should actually be cared for by Catherine of Sweden, his half-sister, so Aunt Catherine that we had talked about before. And then, unfortunately, uh, as if he predicted it, at less than six years old, Christina's father died. Also, Christina was less than six years old. Daddy was a little <laughs> bit older. Um, One would hope. Their father died in the Battle of Lützen on November 6, 1632, leaving Christina the queen heir. Uh, the death of Gustav sent shockwaves through Europe as he had been an important leader among the Protestants against the Catholics. Yeah, um... After that, uh, upon the death of Gustav, Maria Eleonora's behavior uh, got a little more erratic. She insisted that her husband's body not be buried until she could be buried with him. Not only that, like but- Like you do. Like you do. You know, normal. Um, not only that, but that the coffin remain open in a room lit by candlelight and the windows blocked with black velvet, which, if that weren't bad enough, she visited frequently and regularly patted- for 19 months. She was allowed to do that for 19 months. Which is... Uh, I'm gonna go with unhygienic. That's the word I'm gonna go with for that. Just a just a good old-fashioned corpse petting. You know, love to pet a corpse. Love it. 
<laughs> love, a, love to pet a corpse. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> uh, luckily, though, before he died, uh, Gustav had warned that uh, that Maria Eleonora was not to be allowed any influence over Christina, which, uh, which was probably the right decision, given corpse time. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So the the senators that were entreated with uh, Christina's care were kind of divided over what to do. Like, oh, do we do we let Christina stay with their mom, or do we send them away? I'm not really sure. There's not yeah. a clear answer here. There's not a clear answer to this. Uh, but there became a clear answer when she eventually tried to gain power through her child, uh, who she had up until this point mostly ignored. Um, she forced Christina to live alongside her during coffin time with daddy, uh, and dismissed Catherine from the castle, Aunt Catherine, who had looked after Christina for the past two years. She became obsessive and smothering and overwhelming, uh, and although Christina claimed to have loved their mother, quote unquote, tenderly enough, their respect for Maria began to fade when she seized me in spite of my tutors and tried to lock me up with her in her apartment. Fun times. Super fun times. Being locked in an apartment with your mom who has just come back from petting a corpse, it's a great time. Fantastic. Yeah, super, um, super fun. Uh, Chancellor <laughs> Axel Oxenstierna, who I'm going to call Axel Oxen. We're going to call Axel Oxy. Axel Oxy Oxen. boy. Uh, <laughs> uh, Axel, Axel Oxen free. <laughs> Uh, Axel Oxen, uh, eventually forced Maria into exile at Gripsholm Castle. It was a, it was a castle about 50 miles away from Stockholm, and, uh, Oxyboy was, was Gustav's, like, basically, like, right-hand man. He was his chancellor and was basically like, hey, you should take care of my kiddo instead of my crazy wife. Please, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, was going pretty great. Like, after Maria was exiled, Aunt Catherine was, uh, you know, back in, in the saddle hanging out with Christina. And then Aunt Catherine died in 1638. And the Royal Regency Council, led by Axel Oxy, decided that instead of having, like, one head lady-in-waiting and one governess, that they would have two of each, specifically so that Christina wouldn't play favorites later on in life. Um, so they basically gave the 12-year-old four foster mothers instead of just one. It's a good way to have, you know, a balanced perspective on the world. Yeah, you know. Totes. Who doesn't want four moms? <laughs> oh, imagine all the uh, photos, though. Oh, yes, all of the photos so in uh, 17th century Sweden. I'm talking about four moms in general. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so in terms of education... As we mentioned before, Gustav had left instructions that his daughter was to receive, quote, the education of a prince and to take plenty of exercise, which was not commonly recommended or emphasized for a girl during this time period. Christina was taught a bunch of things. They were fluent in so many languages. They were fluent in French, German, Italian, Dutch, Latin, and Greek, and had some knowledge of Hebrew and Arabic as well. Later on in life, French would be like their favorite language ever. <laughs> and in general, they were far more interested in, like, quote-unquote masculine activities than feminine and excelled at hunting, fencing, and horse riding. Christina was also obsessed with the ancient world and loved reading classical Roman and Greek texts and history and often, like, imagined them as, like, a 
commander going into battle. God, what a nerd. What a nerd. (laughs) Uh, They were extremely talented, and several people claimed that they were a political genius even as a child, and their aesthetic taste was impeccable. Uh, They... (laughs) They did a lot of shenanigans as soon as they realized, like, oh shit, I'm in charge. They had a ravenous desire for knowledge and invited talented scholars to their court throughout their entire life, including Rene Descartes, who would later die there. More on that later. We've got a whole story. (laughs) And so Chancellor Oxenstierna, Axel Oxyboy, was instrumental in Christina's education, especially in regards to teaching them politics and statecraft. Uh, Not stagecraft, statecraft. Uh, In Christina's own words about their education, they said, quote, Between what I was taught and what I wanted to learn myself, I was able to learn everything that a prince should know, and everything a girl can learn in all modesty. I loved my books with a passion, but I loved hunting and horse racing and games just as much. The people who had to look after me were at their wit's end, because I absolutely wore them out. And when my women wanted to slow me down, I just made fun of them. (laughs) Every hour of my days was occupied with affairs of state, or study, or exercise. Uh... So they were pretty cool, even from a very (laughs) early age. Yeah. And in 1644, Christina came of age at 18 uh, and took some power from Axeloxy, although the coronation was delayed because they were still in continued war with Denmark. But then in 1645, there was a peace congress to negotiate the end of the Thirty Years' War that, you know, we mentioned earlier. Uh, And Christina sent their own delegate, Johann Salvius, to oppose Axeloxy's son, uh, also named Johann. Who was everyone sent- is named everyone Johann. is named Johann. <laughs> everyone, oh my god! So Johann went to go fight with Johann, who was sent to argue to continue the war. They wanted, uh, they being Christina, wanted peace at any cost. Axel Oxy wanted a good deal for Sweden at the end of the war, but Christina got their way, which was pretty rad. Yeah, and at the at this point, the main goal of Christina, like with wanting it to, you know, wanting peace was at this point when they were, when they were quite young, it was, I want to do exactly the opposite of what Axel Oxy is doing because (laughs) I'm resenting him because he has so much power and he's been ruling my life. It's now time for me to do stuff. Oh my God. He's been ruining my life. Yeah. This is like, (laughs) there were so many times where they were like, I'm going to do this thing because it's the opposite of what you want to do. Hey. Yeah. Did a lot of, like, subterfuge as, like, a 15-year-old. You <laughs> like know, you do. Like any good 15-year-old does, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> after they came of age, uh, many people close to Christina started to urge them to marry. But by the time they were 20, they still had not shown any inclination towards marriage to anybody. Like, like anybody. Although, they did announce that they had decided not to marry, uh, Carl Gustav, their first cousin, uh, as advisors had hoped, and instead named him as heir to the Swedish throne. Uh, people weren't initially happy about it, but after much deliberation in March of 1649, the Riksdag? I can't pronounce yeah, this. Yeah, R- Riksdag, which is basically like like the governing body. What they said. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, they finally agreed to accept Carl as Christina's formal successor, uh, viewing it as a simple formality and was absolutely sure that Christina would eventually marry him. Uh, he would have no hereditary rights and would be replaceable if need be. Uh, Christina, on the other hand, viewed this as a major victory. They could rule, 
remain on the throne as long as they lived uh, and didn't have to worry about marrying or bearing children. Uh, so the coronation took place on October 22nd, 1650. Uh, it was a huge and absolutely spectacular celebration, as Christina tends to throw, as we will see, that cost Sweden a lot of money. Uh, we're talking there were even like gladiatorial animal combats, bears and lions and a calf and a buffalo. Yeah, I, I was writing this and I was like, bears and lions and tigers and bears. Oh and my. <laughs> bears and lions and a calf and a buffalo that all <laughs> chased each other. They couldn't be content with the regular lions, tigers and tigers and bears. They, no, they like this, like this coronation ceremony basically bankrupt Sweden. Uh, Christina plays hard and fast oh, with money. Boy, um, do they, they don't ever. really think about like this. Christina is literally the person that needs the conversation money doesn't grow on trees honey yeah but uh even though uh carl gustav was like coronated everybody was still convinced that christina was gonna stay on the throne which is partially why everybody was super shocked when rumors started to fly that they didn't intend to stay on the throne for very long um so basically what happened was christina originally you know said hey i want to name carl as my successor, um, and it would be, you know, kind of a formality, and he wouldn't have any hereditary rights. So, like, if he had died, then it would go to somebody else. But Christina then later decided, and this is when they were thinking about, really thinking about abdication, when they said, hey, uh, I have a demand, Carl Gustav must be made hereditary prince as well. To which everyone was like, oh, jeez, uh, oh, no, that's a serious. lot. <laughs> that's, yeah, like, that's, no, no, that's too much. Because um, if they die, then it's gonna, it's gonna, like, the Vasa line, the Vasa dynasty that Christina's father was part of, and that Christina was part of, would just be gone, dead. Um, so they did not like that. But they did it anyway. <laughs> yeah. After losing a lot of popularity with the populace for... A, spending a whole lot of money, most notably by increasing the nobility from 300 houses to 600 houses or so over the course of 10 years. Which, to be fair, was also partly uh, Axeloxy's fault. True. He also yeah. participated in that, and it was mostly <laughs> for, like, I think people who were involved in the war, right? As, like, yeah, rewards? Yeah, look... So much of like I didn't say they I, like, were good I was like, with money. I didn't say they were good decisions. I said that no, they were this is so bad, understandable decisions. <laughs> yes. Uh, so there was that, and there was also um, the execution of someone named Arnold Johan again. Oh Messinius. God! So many, <laughs> so many Johans, and his son in 1651. Plus, with Christina's increasing disillusionment with Lutheranism and their intention to convert to Catholicism, and this was like a secret thing and then whispers started flying they were interested in it they were writing back and forth to catholic authorities they were like sneaking in jesuits to stockholm and be like no they're they're foreign merchants yeah it's totally fine um practicing catholicism <laughs> in sweden was illegal and a super no-no and so everybody you know once they started to be like hey wait a minute is christina thinking about switching to catholicism that was a bad thing because the religion of the ruler dictates the religion of the country so <laughs> if you are a lutheran country and you don't suddenly want to become a catholic country you might have a little bit at stake there um so basically after you know all of these things are going on and they're kind of losing popularity 
Christina announces that they're going to abdicate the throne in February 1654 and went through many, many a time of being like, yes, no, yes, no, with the court and finally said, nope, I'm doing this. So on June 6th, 1654, Christina officially abdicates the throne to their cousin and named successor, Carl Gustav. And as part of the crowning, Christina was supposed to have their regalia ceremonially removed piece by piece. And everyone they asked was like, no. No, I won't do it. I won't do it. Like multiple people. It was like, it was like knocking down dominoes. Um, So they apparently removed their crown themselves, which is baller as hell. Um, That might, that part might just be legend. Um, And they made, this was the fun thing is that they made damn well sure that despite their abdication, it was most important to Christina that they had continued status as a sovereign. So as uh, Veronica Buckley writes in her biography of Christina, she was to remain a queen, though a queen without a realm, and on this she insisted. The members of her court were to be subject to her, and she herself was to be subject to no one, no matter where she should be. This was the first article in her abdication agreement before any mention of her appanage, so, like, getting money, before any reference to her successor, and it was vital to her. So all of the perks with no other responsibilities. Basically. Oh, which yeah. Which sounds like a pretty good deal. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, After abdication, they pretty much immediately fled the country. Like, we're talking, like, a day to gather supplies and then just... Same day. Bye-bye. Well, so they had been shipping, like, pieces of art and, like, furniture and silverware and stuff to, uh, I think, Germany? Uh, Uh, I think think they first started um, trying to go to Denmark. Oh, it was Denmark. Yeah, Yeah, it was Denmark and Germany. There's a lot of places. They had had been preparing. Let's just just ship off my art. Um, Yeah, it's likely, um, you know, like, like people say that the reasons for their abdication remain mysterious. They claimed illness and that like the the weight of the ground was too much and blah, blah, blah. But it's more likely that like a combination of their continued pressure towards marriage, even though they secured Carl as their heir, like they were still of marrying age. So they were never going to (laughs) get never going to get that off their back. (laughs) As well as their like general boredom for actual government contributed to their desire to abdicate. They mostly just wanted to rule instead of, like, actually governing. So they they fled to Rome and publicly converted to Catholicism, though they weren't the perfect convert, as they uh, hated public displays of piety. So from there, Christina bounced around different cities for a year or so, traveling from Sweden to Denmark to Germany, settled in Antwerp for a few months, where they took to throwing lavish parties every night, like a baller. Oh, yeah. They quickly ran out of money and had to sell some of the things they had shipped out from Sweden before their departure. Real bad at money. So bad with money. I thought I was bad with money. Yeah, like consistently having to sell their own belongings and other people's belongings (laughs) and shit that belonged to their country. They continue Um, to like nearly bankrupt people that they stay with also, which is... All the time. Wild. You do not want Christina Sweden (laughs) doing your books. No. Um, Archduke Leopold Wilhelm of Austria invited them to his palace when they ran out of things to sell, where Christina officially converted to Catholicism Christmas Eve of that year. Uh, They did not publicly announced their conversion for fear of alimony from the Swedish Sweden being cut off. So the Pope couldn't support them openly at that time because they hadn't announced their conversion either. They did, however, publicly announce their conversion in Innsbruck, Austria. And uh, this was in November 1655. And five days later, later, departed for Rome. So long process. And we're like... We're skimming over so much oh stuff, Oh, my y'all. God. They, they did so much. 
Holy yeah. shit. Um, but, you know, for someone with a life that's so hectic, it makes sense that, hey, guess who planned Christina's route through Italy? Are you guessing? Did you guess the Vatican? Because it was the I'm Vatican. I'm thinking real hard. <laughs> uh, yeah. When you're sponsored by the Pope, oh, things are pretty good. Yeah, cool, because it was a big deal for, like, a, a ruler, even one who had abdicated, to have converted to Catholicism. So the Pope was very happy about that, at least for a little while, uh, and had the Va- Vatican plan Christina's route through Italy. Um and they entered Rome on December 20th, 1655. Uh, December 22nd, the Pope gave them their confirmation uh, and gave them their name Alexandra, I believe, which was the quote-unquote female version of, of his own. Yeah. And mm-hmm. granted them their own wing inside the Vatican, which was decorated by Bernini, with whom they had become lifelong friends literally the day before after entering the city on a couch that he designed for them. I am so jealous. Oh, he is God. a fan of Bernini. Bernini is my favorite sculptor. You don't understand. Art nerdy happening. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously. Okay, no. If you haven't seen a sculpture by Bernini, pause this episode and go to Google and search B-E-R-N-I-N-I because, oh my God. Don't you laugh at me. Bernini's fabulous. <laughs> Guys, they're laughing at me. <laughs> I'm coughing. <laughs> anyway, God. For several months, Christina was like the only focus of the Pope and his entire court because of the aforementioned really big deal. But then Christina decided that uh, it was time to try to become the rule- ruler of Naples, um, which was then a disputed territory between France and Spain. You know, you get bored of not ruling for, like, three years, and then... You're like, <sighs> I think I'd like to be king again. Yeah. So why not king of, uh, hmm. Oh, over there looks good. <laughs> to be fair, it was a disputed territory between France and Spain. Um, and their plan was to convince France, which had, like, officially given up its bid for Neapolitan rule back in, like, 1559, to conquer Naples install Christina as queen, uh, and upon their death, Christina would then pass the rule to France. They went to France to talk to the French about it. And uh, they super shocked the French court while they were there. La Grande Mademoiselle uh, said that they surprised me very much, applauding the parts which pleased her, taking God to witness, throwing herself back in her chair, crossing her legs, resting them on the arms of her chair, and assuming other postures, such as I had never seen taken, but by Travelin and Jodelet, two famous buffoons. She was in all respects a most extraordinary creature. To which I have to say, fellas, is it gay to sit wrong in a chair while in the presence of nobility? Because it certainly yes. seems like it. Certainly is. <laughs> oh boy. Um, but the the way that they behaved at French court shocked and appalled several people and intrigued many others. Uh, and in September of 1656, September 22nd, they got an agreement in writing from Queen Anne, who was regent of France at the time, that they would be supported. And so they headed back to Italy. Yay! Hooray! So fast forward, going back to Italy, waiting to hear... About taking over Naples. Like you did. Like, okay, come on, let's let's do this. Things didn't move quickly enough for very <laughs> impulsive Christina, so they returned to the French court a year later to try to make them turn words into action. Uh, their trusted servant, Italian nobleman Jean Monaldesi, uh, sent copies of their letters to the Pope. We don't know what was in them. And this was a big betrayal. It was like, what are you doing? Uh, so they had him stabbed 
in the mm-hmm. palace, after confronting him with evidence and against the wishes of their advisors, claimed sole responsibility for the act. This was like, this was a thing, like, chased him yeah. through the palace. Yeah, not only. And he got, like, stabbed multiple times. He was like, wearing chainmail. in. He was wearing chainmail. So. He was wearing chainmail. It was a whole it thing. Was, oh, God. Um, so, while it was, like, technically, totally legally fine, like, hey, they're a ruler. They can do this. Um, it went over very poorly because even though they're like sovereign, it's like, hey, but this is like a foreign weirdo coming here and basically committing a grisly murder, even though they didn't stab him themselves. Uh, I don't like this. Not in France. Uh, it essentially ruined their reputation permanently in France and in Rome um, because the Monaldeschi family was powerful enough there to do that. So with all of that and kind of a little bit of disgrace... You know, Christina's a little bit bored again. So in 1660, uh, so three years later, Carl Gustav dies. And <laughs> since stuff didn't work out with Naples, Christina goes, hmm, well, you know what? Uh, I specifically abdicated so that my cousin could take over. Um, and now that they're dead, uh, I should be ruler again. And Sweden was like, no, 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 you're Catholic now. <laughs> That's not going to work. So they actually ended up renouncing the throne again, so Sweden would continue to fund their existence. But because again, guys, God said it's my turn on the throne. It's my turn again. It's my turn. Uh, and as if you know, three <laughs> attempts at trying to rule a country guys. weren't enough. Uh, Christina's last play for a throne <laughs> is in 1668 when John Casimir II of Poland abdicated the throne, and since Poland had an elected monarchy, Christina was eligible through their mother, and being Catholic, uh, Christina was supported by the Pope, yay, uh, but lost the election to someone who was native to uh, Poland, because that makes sense. It makes sense. Like, we don't want the weird queen who keeps spending all of everybody else's money. And has a bad reputation. Thank you. Yeah, bad reputation. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, So, uh, after their several failed attempts at becoming a reigning monarch again, they decided to go back to Rome, and essentially they became the head of the counterculture movement there until they died. Um, They founded the city's first public theater since ancient Rome. They held performances in their palace uh, when the new pope was like, "Mm, no, Uh, Christina even dared to have female performers. Uh, they acted themselves, so they were presenting female at the time, so they were also fucking yeah. with the Pope's rules. Um, <laughs> blatantly forbidden yeah. by the Pope. Uh, so, you know, suck on that. <laughs> also, they- Suck uh, on that, father. Ultimate father. Whatever. I don't know what- it, We're two Jews. We don't know what we, Yeah, speaking of which, uh, they publicly supported Jews, which is very nice. Uh, they forced the yeah. Pope to pass an edict saying that you uh, weren't allowed to chase us through the streets during parties. So, Yay. That that's pretty good. <laughs> that's yeah, pretty they were good. actually they they um they had like said in in a lot of their writing like Jesus conversed with the Jews and they had actually looked into many different religions before before fully, Catholic. <laughs> be, before yeah, before uh converting to Catholicism, like literally BC, looked at before Judaism Catholic. and Islam. <laughs> <laughs> literally looked at Judaism and Islam and was just kind of interested in like what else is going on? I mean, religion for them is kind of a means to an end in a lot of ways. That's fair. Um, Anyway, they died, unfortunately, as most humans do, except Keanu Reeves, I'm not convinced, um, in 1689 at the age of 62 after falling ill. 
they wanted a simple funeral, but the Pope insisted on doing, you know, big public things. So their body was on display for four days, thankfully not 19 months, uh, and fancy rites and rituals were held for them. And they were buried in the same graveyard as the Popes are, uh, one of only three non-men in history to be buried there. And a monument to Christina stands in St. Peter's Basilica to this day. Whew! All right, everyone. Holy We did it. Episode over. No, sorry, we have so much more. Oh, God, that's Um, so much. Yeah. Uh, So, huge bio over. Uh, Y'all want to get to the gay stuff? (laughs) Let's get to the gay stuff. I want to get to the gay stuff. Do you want to get to the gay stuff? <laughs> I'd like to get to the gay stuff. We teased a little bit about this before. Um, so, so folks, why do we think they're gay? <laughs> so there are lots of ways to approach Christina as a queer figure, which is why we love them so much. And also, which is why so many historians are like, I have no idea how to categorize this person. Uh, you know, from being a potentially intersex royal to their super gay relationships and ew marriage attitude to their masculine presentation and behavior, there's lots to go over. So we'll start off with were they intersex? Uh, we talked at the top about the circumstances of Christina's birth. There is a possibility that Christina could have been born intersex, leading to the inconclusive assignment of their gender at birth, why everybody was, you know, so confused, why they thought, hey, we have a son. No, we don't. Um, but of course, we can't say for sure. Like, there's <laughs> not really a way to do that now. Um, yeah. It could be that the midwives were just kind of surprised at the unfamiliarity of a hairy and loud baby. Um, and be like, ah, yes, this baby is loud and strong. It must be a boy. Because <laughs> you know. fucking patriarchy. A 1965 exhumation of Christina's body. I love that somebody's like, all right, let's we dig gotta up. We gotta figure this out. Let's, <laughs> let's dig, dig up this 17th century. <laughs> I love historians. God, And, and uh, archaeologists. Um, so an exhumation of their body found no conclusive positive evidence for them being born intersex. But it's undeniable that Christina bucked gender roles and norms, whether or not there was any sort of biological thing going on. Um, Christina did say of themselves that they were, quote, neither male nor hermaphrodite, as some people in the world have passed me for. There were, like, throughout their entire life, there were rumors and pamphlets distributed calling them a lesbian and an atheist and a prostitute and a hermaphrodite and mm. all this shit. So this this leads us to a discussion of Christina's feelings around their own gender and sex. Yeah, which are storied in many. Um, storied in many. <laughs> so many. Um, there are a lot of factors that show that Christina had, at some level, a really deep discomfort with her own femininity and assignment as a woman. Uh, so many of their own writings show that they were vocal about not feeling entirely female. Uh, so from a young age, Christina decried all elements of womanhood and declared that uh, of all human defects, to be a woman was the worst. <sighs> yikes. Yikes, Christina. Big, big yikes. Um, yeah, they... <sighs> oh, God. Yeah. Um, do you want to read this quote? I Or can. do you want me to read it? Oh, God. I... All right, I'll read it. Thanks. I can't bring myself to do it. <laughs> <laughs> they write, uh, as a young girl, I had an overwhelming aversion to everything that women do and say. I couldn't bear their tight-fitting, fussy clothes. I took no care for my complexion or my figure or the rest of my appearance. I never wore a hat or a mask and scarcely ever wore gloves. I despised everything belonging to my sex, hardly excluding modesty and propriety. I couldn't stand long dresses and I only wanted to wear short skirts. What's more, I was so hopeless at all the womanly crafts that no one could ever teach me anything about them. You ever fail so hard at being a girl? <laughs> oh, that mood. Yeah. 
God. uh, (laughs) And they weren't the only ones who noticed that they weren't a big fan of womanhood. Uh, An ambassador who was really close to Christina in their 20s noted that Christina had, quote, no interest in her own feminine allure, and she will not permit the slightest allusion to it. This is literally Janet, not a girl. Not a girl. Not a robot, not a girl. (laughs) Um, They, uh, Christina even believed that womanhood was, you thought yikes before, Um, well, they believed that womanhood was not fit for sovereignty. Uh, (laughs) Quote, it is almost impossible that a woman should perform the duties required on the throne. The ignorance of women, their feebleness of mind, body, and understanding makes them incapable of reigning. So. Yeah. So, like, that's a thing. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, where do we place Christina, right? Like, they certainly had no doubts in their own ability. No, considering they tried to rule no fewer than four times. They were like, I'm great at this. So are they so unique that they're the exception to their own rule? Or are they not identifying with, like, femaleness at all? Uh, in Christina's autobiography, they address which in which they like are addressing themselves to God. They write about their own like physical and psychological makeup, specifically thanking God for letting them be born a woman. Um, they say, "I thank you, Lord, for letting me be born a woman. The more so as you have shown me the grace of not letting any of the defects of my own sex be inherent on my soul, which you in mercy have made altogether male, just as the rest of my being." So it's clear that. Christina did have some sense of, like, their own soul, their own being, being not... Not female. And more on the male side of There's things. There's some gender like, fuckery involved. There's some gender stuff. <laughs> um, growing up and receiving their princely education coincided well with what Christina themselves most enjoyed. Even their toys as a child were more, like, masculine in nature. They had, like, little army men over dolls, and they described them as pieces of lead that I used to learn military maneuvers. Uh, <laughs> they would, like, set them out, like, a little battle formation. <laughs> and again, like, more people, you know, the way that Christina acted and behaved were far from feminine. Oh, yeah. Uh, They were walking and sitting like a dude, uh, (laughs) adopting, like, martial poses when talking of military action, like, hands on your hips and... Power pose. Standing with, like, one foot in front of the other. And they apparently ate and swore like a soldier, and they had a deep and gruff voice. Um, A chaplain uh, from Rome recorded a telling description of Christina, saying that there is nothing feminine about her uh, except her sex. I I like the, uh, I see her on horseback nearly every day. Oh, yeah. Though she rides side saddle, she holds herself so well and is so light in her movements that unless one were quite close to her, one would take her for a man. And this is where I I think really, I mean, we've we've seen Christina talking a little bit about themselves and mostly people being like, that person doesn't seem particularly feminine. This is where I think it gets really interesting because as soon as Christina abdicated the throne and left Stockholm for the Danish border, they made a transformation. They literally threw off the clothes of their femininity. Some historians posit this as like a method of disguise designed to hide in plain sight in case the Swedish authorities decided to, you know, spy on them and like, they they knew that they were spies all over, um, but decided to like renege on their financial commitments but considering everyone pretty much knew who christina was and where they were going what they were up to and considering so christina spent the rest of their life in these fashions i'm much more want to say that this was more of an act of alignment for them they put on men's clothing that from then on would be their preferred attire they cut their hair off into the like loose male bob fashion of the day and buckled on a sword like you do 
And yeah. to go the extra mile, they even adopted the name of one of their companions, Count Christoph von Donna, which they didn't keep for very long. And supposedly, upon reaching the border between Denmark and Sweden, they crossed onto the Danish side of the stream and reportedly exclaimed, free at last, out of Sweden, and I hope to never come back. Except when he tried to reclaim the throne later. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, hindsight yeah. is twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah. So the last bit that we have about gender fun is uh, basically from this point on, so 27 years of age, Christina would be reluctant to wear any women's style hair or clothing, preferring flat men's shoes, usually boots, and a sword, and wearing a feathered hat. God, they sound so cool. It sounds so cool. <laughs> I want to dress like Christina. I know. One of the most detailed descriptions of them we have is from the Duc de Guise who was the former captor and king of Naples, who accompanied Christina on their journey to the French court. He writes in this, like, letter to his friend. He's been, like, staring at Christina and taking them in. And, <laughs> uh, writes, I'm dreadfully bored at the moment, but I would at least like to amuse you by sending you a portrait of the queen I am accompanying. She is not tall, but she is shapely with a large rump, Rude. Rude. Uh, fine arms and pretty white hands, but more of a man than a woman, and with one shoulder higher than the other, though she hides this so well with her bizarre clothes and her way of walking that one really could lay odds on whether the defect is there at all. Her face is long, but not to a fault, and all her features are long, too, and quite pronounced. Her nose aquiline, her mouth rather large, but not so disagreeably so. Her teeth passable. What what makes passable teeth? Uh, uh, her eyes really beautiful and full of fire. Her complexion, despite a few pockmarks, quite clear and pretty. Here's where we, we get into the gender stuff. Her face is nicely shaped, but framed by the most extraordinary coiffure. She wears a man's wig, very heavy and piled high in front, hanging thickly at the sides and fair at the ends. The top of her head is a mass of hair. At the back, it looks vaguely like a woman's coiffure. Sometimes she wears a hat. Her bodice is laced crosswise at the back. It is almost made like a man's vest, with her shirt showing all the way between it and her skirt. The skirt is very badly fastened and not very straight. She always <laughs> wears either. a lot of powder and lots of face cream, and she hardly ever wears gloves. She wears men's shoes, and she sounds and moves like a man as well. In short, she is quite extraordinary. I don't think I have forgotten anything, except that she sometimes wears a sword and a buffalo hide collar, and her wig is black. So, God. very obviously, kind of like what we saw with the public universal friend, deliberately weaving kind of men's fashion into their clothing and, you know, wearing what they could get away with, basically. Yeah. And and gender isn't the only thing that is queer about Christina. Uh, Christina oh, no. was also totally interested in ladies. As well as dudes, uh, to a certain extent, which we'll get into. You know, we already talked about Christina being like, um, no, no marriage, no marriage for me, thank you. Um, <laughs> which we'll get into a little bit more, because there's even more to Christina than just, like, attraction and gender. There's so much. So much. Uh, so in addition to their, like, childhood affections for Carl Gustav, who we mentioned, and there was a man named Magnus in their youth that they, like, were totally infatuated with, um, who rejected Christina due to their lack of femininity. So shortly after they had to, like, get over Magnus, one of their ladies-in-waiting soon caught Christina's eye in a big way, which is where we start talking about the Lady Levin. I'm so excited. If you know anything about Christina before this, then you probably know about Ebisbar. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, then that's probably what you know about Christina. <laughs> um, <laughs> just saying. But uh, Ebisbar was a very beautiful 15-year-old girl who had been sent by her father to become Christina's handmaiden. So when Christina was 18, 
they became very infatuated with her and called her Belle, constantly talking about her beauty to anyone who would listen. Mm-hmm. Um, the two often shared a bed. Not unusual at the time for two unmarried, quote-unquote, women. Uh, but Christina loved the provocative possibilities of this, uh, insinuating to prudish visitors that Belle's inside was as beautiful as her outside, and introducing Belle to the English ambassador Whitlock as their bedfellow. Uh, yeah. Christina loved a good body joke, and this went a long way to convincing everyone that they were lesbian, not to mention their reluctance to marriage. Yeah. Um, Christina really loved, uh, really loved a dirty joke and swore like a sailor. Um, I would have gotten along with Christina pretty well. Same. Um, but it, their affections for Ebba were not just, uh, a joke because their surviving letters make it clear that their passion was romantic. And it seems that, uh, that Ebba returned Christina's affections, although we don't know their physical relationship, uh, which we will talk about more in just a second. Yeah. Christina did love to tease <laughs> Belle, though. Uh, Belle was basically the exact opposite of Christina. Like, she was maidenly and, and very fair and, like, super feminine. So there's there's even a story that has an illustration to go with it, too, which we'll put up on the website, um, where Christina basically convinced Belle to read a raunchy passage out aloud from a dirty book uh, that they were so pleased with themselves with this prank. Uh, So uh, Veronica Buckley details this story saying, she led her one day to the chamber of Claude Somy, a Frenchman and a favorite of the queen who had absented himself for some scholarly rendezvous on the pretext of illness. They found him sitting up in bed with a risque book in his hand. Recognizing the title, Christina disingenuously asked Belle to read a passage aloud from it. Belle began confidently, but was soon blushing and stammering to a loud roar of laughter from the queen and a quiet smirk from the sume. So <laughs> it was like, hey, this seems like a really cool, innocent book. Why don't you read some of it? Um, and then suddenly you're reading hear porn. It. Suddenly you're <laughs> reading porn. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Belle remained Christina's loyal friend for the rest of their life. And Christina even interfered in Belle's marriage, <laughs> choosing her husband as someone who would, you know, kind of keep her close to the court and therefore close to Christina. Um, there's even a fun gossip story, um, so we don't know the truth of it, but it suggests that Christina ordered all of the guests at their wedding celebrations to get naked and dance. So some reputation Christina was gaining for themselves. Yeah. Um, when they went back to Sweden to try to get the throne again, they actually tried to see Ebba Spar, but um, the Spar family did not let them. They did um, not want. Yeah. But uh, one letter from uh, their palace in Rome in 1656 at the age of 30 depicts Christina's lonely mood and decision to write home to Sweden addressed Alabelle. The lonely king without a castle still had not found anyone to replace her. And Christina writes... How happy I would be if I could only see you, Belle. But though I will always love you, I can never see you, and so I can never be happy. I'm yours as much as I ever was, no matter where I may be in the world. Can it be that you still remember me? Am I as dear to you as I used to be? Do you still love me more than anyone else in the world? If not, do not undeceive me. Let me believe it is still so. Leave me the comfort of your love, and do not let time or my absence diminish it. I do, Belle. I do. I kiss you a million times. Just, just gals uh, being pals. Gals being pals, you know. But uh, as infatuated as Christina was with Belle, 
Uh, Belle was followed by a number of other beautiful young women who captured Christina's eye and heart, uh, including some other handmaidens, Jane Ruthven and Louise Vanderneuf. Uh, but... <sighs> Feudal Lord. Handmaiden joke. <sighs> Thank you. None really held a candle to Belle. Elector Edward of Bavaria wrote a letter about Christina, uh, saying... She dearly loves beautiful women. In Lyon, she met one who very much pleased her. She kissed her everywhere, on the throat, the eyes, the forehead, very passionately. And she even wanted to kiss the tongue in her mouth and to sleep with her, which the woman, however, did not want to do. Consent is key. (laughs) Yeah. Consent is is very important. Uh, Christina also took a fancy toward the Marquis de Ganges. Uh, writing to her the most extra of letters. Oh god, it's so extra. (laughs) Writing, Ah, if I were a man, I would throw myself at your feet, submissive and languishing with love. I would pass my days there, I would pass my nights there, to contemplate your divine attractions, and offer you a tender, passionate, and faithful heart. But since I am not, let us limit ourselves, beautiful Marquis, to the purest and most confident and the firmest of friendships. On my side, that is all I think, but my burning desires are not satisfied. Your beautiful eyes, you know, are the innocent authors of all my suffering. They alone can, in an instant, repair the damage and make my happiness by their softening. Would you, alas, refuse me one of your gracious looks? No, no. As sensitive as beautiful, you will listen with kindness to the tender moans of my deep suffering, and I shall spend the rest of my life in painful enchantment. And here we get with a little bit of fun gender stuff. While waiting for an agreeable metempsychosis to change my sex, I want to see you, to adore you, and to tell you of it every instant. Until now, I have searched for pleasure everywhere and have hardly tasted it. If your generous heart would take pity on mine, upon my arrival in the next world, I would caress it with constantly renewed delight. I would savor it in your victorious arms and make it last eternally. In this sweet hope... I live the days of my life, and my happiness grows thinking of you. Just gals being pals. Just gals being pals. This was apparently uh, a pretty short-lived fling, though. So yeah, yeah. Also, though, on the uh, the year between the first time they went to France and the second time they went to France to try to get the throne of Naples, on their way back the first time, they met Ninon de Lang Langlois. Okay, French. I. I can't, I can't. French is the hardest for me. I can't. Um, <laughs> who seems very cool. Like, I did a little bit of reading about her uh, in addition to her. Uh, so she had, uh, she was an atheist pretty much. Uh, her opinions on organized religion had her exiled to a convent uh, from which Christina had her released. Nobody knows what happened to have Christina do that, but Christina did always like free thinkers. Uh, we, we like to think there might have been a crush there. Um and then later on in life, Christina often chose paintings uh, and sculptures of naked women to decorate their apartments. Like you do. Hashtag nice. Nice. Yeah. So we come around to our last bit of evidence of different spheres of Christina's queerness, which is, so we saw Christina was vehemently disinterested in marriage, as we saw when it oh came boy, to the question <laughs> of providing a successor for their throne and the pressure that they endured to marry. So when they when they approached their advisors telling them that Carl Gustav would be their successor, they said, quote, I am telling you now it is impossible for me to marry. I am absolutely certain about it. I do not intend to give you reasons. My character is simply not suited to marriage. 
I have prayed God fervently that my inclination might change, but I simply cannot marry. Christina also made their distaste and aversion to the idea of sex with a man very clear in what is perhaps the best quote ever. I could not bear to be used by a man the way a peasant uses his fields. Amazing. So Uh, good. So where a lot of historians kind of stop there and say, okay, Christina isn't interested in men. Christina is a lesbian, etc., etc., This distaste in sex and a kind of uncomfortability with physical relationships didn't just extend to men as like a flat out preference for lady boning. Um, As we discussed, while Christina was interested in women, this didn't preclude an interest in men, right? We had Carl Gustav. They were infatuated with the Count Magnus de la Gardier in 1645. And there were more later in their life. It, it seems that despite their love for body jokes and raunchy humor, Christina doesn't really seem to have, quote, followed any of their passions to their natural conclusion, quote unquote, natural conclusion. Uh, as Veronica <laughs> Buckley again puts it, she says, where men were concerned, she understood her own reticence to being used, quote unquote. Where women were concerned, she bought a lot of pictures and gave a lot of presents and wrote a lot of flowery letters, but physical love itself, she never seems to have sought. Uh, in their 40s, they fell in love with a cardinal named uh, Decio Azzolino, who had been appointed Christina's representative in the Catholic Church, you know, the Catholic Church that was in love with them for a while. Um, the whole church, like <laughs> all of it. The physical church. Yes. That was a bad joke. Please cut that. Anyway. <laughs> um, and they uh, they would be close with the cardinal for nearly 30 years. Um, Veronica Buckley again notes that at the beginning of their flirtations, Christina abandoned their manly dress and took to wearing gowns once again. Their femininity somewhat awakened. But this was in some ways a safe way to explore. Buckley says... She may have felt that she could enjoy a flirtation, protected from any real consequence, in theory at least, by the Cardinal's vow of celibacy. If so, it was the first time and the last that Christina would play the coquette. Uh, it's most likely they engage in a romantic friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Christina's squeamishness over sex was enough to actually at one point, uh, and out of character, give thanks to God for their worst defect of being a woman – which they believe saved them from their life of uh, sexual depravity, considering their passionate nature. Um, They said, My ambition, my pride, incapable of submitting to anyone, and my disdain, despising everything, have miraculously saved me. I admit that if I had not been born a girl, my temperament might have led me into terrible disorder. But you, who all my life have made me love glory and honor more than any pleasure, you have saved me from the misfortunes that I would have been plunged into by chance, by freedom of my rank, and by the ardor of my temperament. I would no doubt have married if I had not recognized in myself the strength that you have given me to resist the pleasures of love. So that's that's so interesting that Christina is specifically saying if they had been born a different way, that they would have been a highly sexual person. Because they're already a very passionate person by nature. We saw that in the letters to (laughs) Belle and to uh, the Marquis. And so I think it's really interesting that in this way, Christina is grateful that they're born this certain way, which really leads me to think like, oh, huh, somebody is very squeamish about sex and sexual attractions. And it's also very possible that Christina's magnetic draw toward Rome and Catholicism had something to do with their aversion towards sex and marriage. 
Christina had come to view the Roman Catholic Church as like a haven from all of their troubles and could protect them from it all. Catholics valued the celibate life, after all, and so they most likely wouldn't be pressured to marry and bear children, unlike the Lutheran ideals of let women bear children unto death. So like Lee was saying earlier, uh, religion as a means to an end. Yeah. <laughs> so in conclusion, we awesomely may have had a biromantic, asexual, genderqueer king of Sweden, and we are all for it. Like, all the things. So many. This is yeah, going to be a very, long very episode, good. folks, because holy crap. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Uh, before oh. Uh, before we, we reach our conclusion and we dive into what will probably be our very high ratings of how gay were they, we have some other little fun Christina facts that we wanted to bring up. Just some things about their personality and fun stories. Uh, V's going to start off uh, because they're the artist. They're gonna t- oh, wait, no. Sorry. I'm going to talk about no. the art. <laughs> Um, You're going to talk about well, the art. I'm going to talk about being arrogant, okay? All right. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> um, so Christina basically believed that uh, royalty was literally in their blood. Like, uh, they were innately born to rule, which is what continued to push them towards thrones later in their life after abdicating as ruler of Sweden. First of uh, all, I'm a king, the- so shut the fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> God. Uh, and that's something that we didn't talk about, I think, that their official title was king. Which yeah, was pretty in rad. Sweden they had king. Which is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, Veronica Buckley writes, Christina had the idea that sovereignty was something she carried within herself. For Christina, kingship was a personal attribute that had nothing to do with the rights and regalia of monarchy. Her right to rule, she believed, was innate. She could not be divested of it. It was not dependent on possession of the Swedish crown or any other since God himself had planted this mark of greatness on her forehead, and even in her childhood it had inspired respect and fear in all who saw it. And then, in Christina's own words, in 1633, following uh, their acclamation, The people were amazed by my grand manner, playing the role of a queen already. I was only little, but on the throne I had such an air, such a grand appearance, that it inspired respect and fear in everyone. You had planted on my forehead this mark of greatness. And they're talking to God at that point. <laughs> talking to God. They're talking to God. They're always. When are they not talking to God? <laughs> when they're talking to when Belle. they're talking to the people that they're in love with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> correct. Um, so they were um, kind of a little arrogant, uh, which was reflected in the fact that they refused to be wrong. Writing, I could never stand to be corrected. Uh, they always had to have the last word. And my favorite thing that they've written. Like, we have some cool things that they wrote at the end of the episode, but holy shit, my favorite thing that they've ever written is, to attack me is to attack the sun. <laughs> they're just, they're God. so into themselves and I love it. They really are. <sighs> but I mean, if I were them, I also would be. Same. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> we're also very into them. <laughs> we're also very into them. It's just like equal opportunity uh, love of Christina. Um, it's incredible. So, we had mentioned that Christina, like, after abdicating and, like, immediately running to another country, had been sending a bunch of paintings. They were a big lover of art and culture. They had so many paintings and, as we said, brought them back and forth across Europe during their adventures, like, their whole life. And they also when frequently- they were selling them off. And then selling them off. <laughs> they also frequently sat for paintings and one of the most, uh, usually, like, sitting as, like, being depicted as, like, Diana or another, like, goddess of the hunt, because mood, um, one of the most well-known portraits of them, and we'll put this up on the website, depicts Christina at 26 years old, and it's a huge hunting portrait in, like, a very male style. They're 
sitting atop a rearing horse and holding a sword in their hand. And there's like other people and like a dog and it's, it's pretty great. And this painting was of course their favorite and it hung in their bedroom until their death. Christina tried super hard to make Stockholm basically the Athens of the North, uh, attracting philosophers and scientists and artists to their court. They established like academies of artists uh, wherever they went, and they were basically determined to show the world that Sweden had class and culture. Like their two main goals while they were ruling Sweden were end the war, give us peace in Sweden, and make Sweden a super artsy. Yeah, make Sweden super artsy. Um, they, yeah. this is, this is why I wanted to talk about this, because this is my favorite story. They literally so collected, good. they collected philosophers and artists at their court like they were Pokemon, including, <laughs> as we mentioned before, the renowned philosopher Rene Descartes. The Gotta two, catch them all. Gotta catch them all. The two, and quite literally, we'll talk about. Oh, God. The, the two wrote to one another discussing philosophy and the moral world, and while Christina was fascinated with his writings, uh, they liked to dispute them often and, like, treated it like a game, and also spent an excessive amount of time in between letters, which really annoyed Descartes. Um, needless to say, Descartes wasn't a fan, uh, as can be seen in this letter to his brother-in-law, who was a, a friend of Christina's, uh, after, like, 15 months of no response from Christina. God. He just writes this salty letter that's like, it is enough to wonder that a queen perpetually engaged in affairs of state should have recalled, after several months, a letter that I had had the honor to write her, and that she should have taken the trouble to reply at all, let alone to reply sooner. He's trying to be, like, as polite as he can, considering he's but talking he's so to salty. a king, but very salty. So salty. And then, so, Christina, after, like, not talking to him <laughs> and leaving him basically on read, so surprisingly invites him and suggests him to come to Sweden to wait upon the good Christina, which Descartes was not about. Uh, Stockholm was too far too cold. He had zero interest in Sweden, quote, with its rocks and ice and bears, which is my favorite way to describe <laughs> and Sweden. And calves uh, and, and like buffalo. writes to his brother-in-law about how much he didn't want to go. He like writes a quote, he like writes a letter to Christina being like, oh, I don't know. Thank you so much for inviting me. And writes this letter to his brother-in-law being like, bro, nah, I don't want to <laughs> do that. So what does Christina do? Remember when we said Christina refused to hear the word no and did not uh, uh, like to be wrong. Didn't um, like no. <laughs> Christina literally ended up kidnapping Descartes. Um, <laughs> so Descartes, one of the reasons why he did not want to go was he was discouraged by the prospect uh, of it because he felt like, quote, they just wanted to have me like some sort of elephant or panther on account of my ra rarity. Basically another addition to Christina's Philosopher Zoo. Pokemon. Uh, Gotta literally physically catch literally them all. physically catch them all. <laughs> so, since he didn't want to go in a Pokeball of his own accord, Christina <laughs> literally kidnaps him. This weirdo <laughs> sends a small armed militia <laughs> to where Descartes is <laughs> in France to collect him <gasps> and bring him to their palace. And Descartes is <sighs> stuck there for several months during the bitterly cold winter. You know. And, and he's enjoying himself to some extent, but Christina's not really paying any attention to his philosophy lessons, getting bored with him, and being in the bitterly cold place that he didn't want to be, being forced to get up at like five in the morning for philosophy lessons, uh, <laughs> dies of the flu. 
Whoops. Uh, to be fair, Descartes was an <laughs> asshole who decided he didn't want anyone but a Frenchman treating him. He decided that uh, he didn't trust the Swedes or the Dutchmen who were going to try to treat him. So he decided the best way to get better was to drink hot tobacco juice. Um, it decidedly was not. In his defense, he was kidnapped there. He contracted pneumonia and died. So Christina of Sweden killed Rene Descartes. <laughs> so yeah. that's my favorite yeah. story. Uh, <laughs> it's a very good story. They it's did work together to make plans to open an academy, though. Yes. Um, Christina did some really, really cool things that I don't think we have listed here yet. But <laughs> they, I believe, started the first like newspaper in Sweden. Which was pretty rad. Whole bunch um, of cool RT stuff. Yeah, they they did that. They did public schooly things. <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm less articulate. That's okay. We have it's a long episode. Things. We had to oh, cut God. some it's, things. It's a long episode. It's 10:30 p.m. <laughs> I've been awake since six. Um, <laughs> let's talk more about Christina. Um, they not only liked philosophy. They also really liked watching and acting in plays, uh, and they always took part in the starring role, uh, usually as a queen or a goddess, most often as Diana or Athena, because uh, obviously, uh, pursuing the chase and issuing marriage with equal vengeance. <laughs> While Christina was in Innsbruck as the guest of Archduke Ferdinand, a new musical drama was performed in their honor called Largia. Uh, yeah, I think that's I'm probably gonna end, that large I'm going to end every single pronunciation with a question mark. I can't help it. I'm so <laughs> sorry. Uh, it is a tale of love, betrayal, incest, and lesbian seduction with a heroine in trousers and a chorus of pirates, a vast corps de ballet, uh, and plenty of theatrical wizardry, all perfectly calculated to appeal to Christina's adventurous imaginations. Uh, accordingly, Christina was obsessed. They saw the six-hour-long play twice and watched it, quote, with great pleasure and attention. Uh, to be fair, there was a chorus of pirates, so I cannot blame them. Yeah, I really, I really love it. It's like, oh, shit, the queen is coming to Austria? Let's, uh, let's, let's make a play about, uh, lesbian seduction and a heroine in trousers and a bunch of pirates. Let's do that. Lots of pirates. Let's do Perfect. that. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, since we are running so <laughs> short on time, um, we... <sighs> aren't going to go through all of the maxims of a queen. So Christina loved writing little pithy statements. We will put them on our website, but some of our, our fun ones are things that they wrote like, life is sh too short for love, or it requires more courage to marry than to go to war. Um, they're fun. I love it. And, and you could definitely- can, can I do my favorite one? My you favorite, can do your one favorite one that really kind of sums up their life? Yes. Uh, Patience is the virtue of those that lack either courage or force. Yeah, that's 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 fair. That's on brand. <laughs> it's uh, extremely on brand, yes. Yeah. So we'll we'll wrap up here with our uh pop culture tie-in. We don't have a word of the week this week, but we do have a pop culture tie-in. Uh most people, if they are familiar at all with Christina, are familiar with them because of the nineteen thirty-three movie Queen Christina, starring Greta Garbo which is uh, very fun. They originally wanted to depict the accurate sexuality of King Christina, but uh, Hollywood wasn't ready. 
So instead, it portrayed the fictional romance between Christina and a Roman Catholic Spanish envoy named Don Antonio, who uh, in the film was the reason Christina abdicated and converted. But considering Greta Garbo was queer as fuck, she played it queer as fuck and made it real gay. So there's a lot of fun subtext in there. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side, though, uh, back in 2015, a biodrama called The Girl King, based on a 2012 play of the same name, happened. Uh, it actually depicted Ebesfar's relationship with Christina, although in a very, very melodramatic and, according to critics, two-dimensional way. Um, yeah. Just give us complex queer love. Please. Yes. Please. And yeah. God. So that is the life and times and queerness of King Christina of Sweden. You will also see, uh, we have been saying it, and we will be using uh, the the spelling of Christina with a K. You will see it elsewhere as Christina with a C-H. However you want to look them up, look them up. Find more information, because, oh my god, there's so much. I read a whole book. There's, we... There's we a lot. cut so much cut out. So much. Holy shit. So with that, considering we still don't even know the sheer level of badassery of this person, uh, I'm going to haze our lovely guest, V, and have them oh, no. give their How Gay Were They ratings first, because they hazed me when I was on their podcast, Fuzzy it's Logic. It's true, I did. That so I'm going to put happen. you on the spot and make you think of pithy things. So, uh, V, how gay were they? You know, I'm going to give them uh, one lavish, bankrupting a country party of gayness. Only one? Well, what, what is what is that on a scale? They, they planned three more, but they <laughs> fell through. <laughs> it's so on a scale of one to one. Yeah, so Christina just completely, like, just tips the scale. Like, it's a scale of one to one. I like yeah, that. exactly. Let's see. Um, I will go with, I will stay with our traditional, uh, scale of 10, because I want Christina to be, um, 20 out of 10 lions, tigers, <laughs> and bears at a very expensive oh coronation, and then bankrupting your entire country. Oh, God. They yeah. really did do that, huh? They really did. Multiple times. They really? T- Multiple times. Did. The entire yeah. Swedish government was like, uh, yeah. what are we gonna do? Yeah. It was great. Um, yeah, so that's, that's it for today's episode. Everyone say hi and thank you to V, our lovely guest. You may be hearing more from them in the future. We're going to try to do some more fun things together and again, bug them about making cool merch because y'all want more fun history is gay stuff (laughs) and I want to pay V for their cool art. So give me more reasons to pay artists like my friend. (laughs) Uh, V, where can our lovely listeners hear or find you on the interwebs when you're not uh, hanging out with me? Well, uh, when I am not looking into the super queer quarters of history, uh, I am working on one or two or seven artistic endeavors, uh, like the History is Gay Geographic Queer shirts and now stickers and phone cases, question mark. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I am also usually findable at Nike, A-G-X-Y, that's Nike like the shoe, A-G like silver, X-Y like the chromosomes. Um, oh, now I get your Twitter handle. Yeah, there you All go. Right. <laughs> um, 
talking about Dungeons and Dragons and uh, taking care of yourself, uh, or talking about my educational-ish comedy-esque currently on winter break podcast at Fuzzy Logic. Pod. It's real good, y'all. You should listen to it. I, Lee was a guest on it. I was a guest on it. It is one of my favorite podcasts. It consistently makes me literally lull. It makes me laugh out loud <laughs> in my car like a hysterical person, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, where can people find you? Where can people find me when I'm not nerding out about gladiatorial animal combats from a genderqueer ace by romantic sovereign of medieval Europe, or I guess <laughs> 17th century Europe. Uh, I'm usually talking about comics and queer TV over at A Paradox in Flux on on Twitter and doing a whole bunch of other fun podcasty things. Um, pretty soon I will be featured on an episode of Podcast Movement Sessions, which are a whole bunch of different interviews from my uh, experience at Podcast Movement in Orlando back in August. Um, so there will be one episode featuring me at some point. Uh, I think the first the first episodes of the season drop at the end of this month. That's all I know for now, but look out for that. And History is Gay can be found on Tumblr at History is Gay Podcast, Twitter at History is Gay Pod, and you can always drop us a line as usual with questions, suggestions, or just to say hi at History is Gay Podcast at gmail.com. We're always really happy to get emails from you. And lastly, uh, if you enjoy the show and want to support us in continuing to make it, you can support us on Patreon, where you can get access to Sappho's Salon Minisodes, which I promise there will be some coming soon, special sneak peeks, the opportunity to have your voice show up on the show, and more. You can become a patron by going to the support section on our website and join the ranks of our patron community along with the amazing Jenna or Yana, sorry, pronunciation, uh, Gibhart Engel and Julie Siegler. Thank you all so much for your support. As we say every episode, we literally couldn't do this without you. Thank you for sticking with us through our hiatus. Um, you can also buy merch at our store do it. featuring V's wonderful art. So click on shop at our website. Um, if you want to contribute in other ways, uh, we have transcriptions now. We have a transcription project going on. So if you want to help and transcribe episodes for our uh, hard of hearing or deaf fans, please help us out. Just go to our website and click on transcriptions and you will get all the details there. And lastly, please remember to rate review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps more people find the show, and we can expand this awesome community and bring even more cool people like V on. Yay! And with that, that's it for History is Gay. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Stay curious.